Support for MindShift comes from Landmark College. Its annual Summer Institute for Educators takes place June 25th through 27th. Registration is now open at landmark.edu lcsi. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid, and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just what we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio, it was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support. From KQED. Welcome to MindShift, the podcast about the future of learning and how we raise our kids. I'm Kara Newhouse. And I'm Nima Gobier. Educators are always striving to create hands-on lessons to engage students. These types of learning approaches improve learning retention and promote a deeper understanding of concepts. Some teachers rely on project-based learning, where they have students solve real problems in their community. Others might opt for experiential learning, which can involve field trips and role-playing. There's also collaborative learning, where students work with their peers. Luckily, teachers don't have to go far if they want to implement hands-on approaches. According to educator Jenny Seidel, the school building and school grounds are incredible resources for this type of learning. For children up through middle school, that is the place that they spend most time. By the time a child graduates from high school, they've spent more than 15,000 hours in a school. Jenny is an expert in environmental education and the founder of Green Schools National Network. She invites educators to think of schools as three-dimensional textbooks. Any phenomenon, all of the kinds of things that we teach, the social issues and social problems that are happening in the world are oftentimes happening in a school. That's the place where we can bring anything to life that we are teaching. So Jenny is saying we can use schools to bridge the gap between theoretical knowledge and real-world application. That's exactly right. When you use your school as a 3D textbook, you can look at all kinds of things like your school's water system, or architecture, even school lunches. Today, we'll zero in on schoolyards. If you think about it, schoolyards are incredible because they entertain kids over many years in developmental stages. And unless a kid is part of a family that's big on gardening, hiking, or camping, it's likely that schoolyards are where they spend most of their outside time. My name is Sharon Danks, and I'm an environmental city planner. I talked to Sharon to learn more about schoolyards, how they're used, and their untapped potential. Many things they would like to study can be done outdoors in 
in a schoolyard. These days it's particularly well suited to studying climate change and how the materials that people put into the environment shift the temperatures of our urban locations. In California, we have 130,000 acres of public land at our K-12 schools, and they have close to 6 million people on them every day. And that's more public land visitation than, say, Yosemite has in an entire year. But unlike Yosemite and other national parks, the majority of schoolyards are not very green. Asphalt, plastic grass, and rubber, which are a lot of the go-to traditional materials in the United States. I've seen asphalt and blacktop at many schools. It's usually where kids play Foursquare and skin their knees playing tag. It's everywhere. In fact, millions of kids go to schools where fewer than 5% of the grounds have trees. Even in communities that have a lot of trees, if you look at the aerial photos, they're not at the schools. If a school has trees or green space, it's usually around the edges of a school, like near the school sign or by the parking lots. It's not to shade kids in sunny weather. And these days, kids need all the shade they can get. Triple-digit temperatures have forced schools all around the country to cancel classes and even delay the first day of school. Here's what fourth grader Adriana Salas is noticing. It's mostly hot where we're playing at, and sometimes um, when it's too hot, sometimes when you look for just like on the top of anything, it turns like foggy. She's talking about when it gets so hot outside that the ground looks kind of wavy. She's seen that happen at her school's playground. We'll hear more from Adriana later. There's a lot of communities struggling with urban heat island effect and um, really extreme temperatures that make it unsafe for kids to be outside. This is Priya Cook from the Children in Nature Network organization. I heard Priya say urban heat island effect. What is that? That's when asphalt and pavement actually increase the temperature in a community. There's a lot of materials that are used in playgrounds, that are used in parking lots and roads that really absorb heat and reflect that heat back. Places that have a lot of urban heat islands are likely to be lower income parts of the city because they usually have fewer plants and more pavement. Often these hotter areas are populated by folks of color. There's a difference in some cases of 10 degrees between, you know, a place that has trees planted and, and one, a site that does not. In many cases, that's a big enough difference to dictate whether or not kids are going to go outside that day, which has all kinds of health and, and learning impacts. The good news is that schools aren't standing idly by while their schoolyards heat up. We'll hear from one school in San Leandro, California about how they turn to their schoolyards as a way to learn more about these environmental changes firsthand. That's coming up after the break. Stay with us. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now. 
Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. All right. So welcome, everybody. Make your way over here with me. It's a beautiful day at Roosevelt Elementary School in San Leandro, California. Today, it's 67 degrees Fahrenheit, but temperatures here can get into the triple digits. Ms. Hines and Ms. Lamb's fourth grade classes have come together to start a project that uses their schoolyard as a 3D textbook. Um, today is our first day of doing our How Cool Is Your School project. So, Ms. Lamb is speaking to students using a headset. This project is the brainchild of Green Schoolyards America. Sharon Danks, who we spoke to earlier, is the founder of that organization. Ms. Land teed up students for the How Cool Is Your School project with two guiding questions. Is our schoolyard a comfortable place for children and adults when the weather is warm? And how can our school community take action to shade and protect students from rising temperatures due to climate change? So students are put into groups of three, and each group is given a map of the school. We have our classrooms right here. We have uh, the basketball courts, the cafeteria, our other building over there, and the um, kindergarten rooms. Different locations on the map are numbered from 1 to 25. So those numbers are there for a reason. You are going to get five places that you have to measure. So you have to figure out exactly where that number is and find that spot in the school. Each group also gets an infrared thermometer. You're going to point the thermometer at the ground. When you pull the trigger, the temperature stops and records it. That's where you and your team are going to record your temperature. So at one location, you'll be doing three readings. This is the crux of the project, so I'll reiterate what Ms. Lamb says. Each group takes three temperature readings of the same point on the ground in their assigned location. This is to get an accurate reading of the ground surface. Then they record the average of the three readings on a worksheet. We are going to go on the field to 16, number 16. We followed one group of students as they did their measurements. Arlo Jones, fourth grade. Jake Deichel, fourth grade. Adriana Salas, fourth grade. And yes, this is the same Adriana that we heard from earlier. First up on their list, Area 16. It's located on the field, so it's a grassy area. They make their way over and get their three readings with their thermometer. 97. Okay, one more time, two. 91. Three. 102. They record their findings. The surface of the field has an average of about 97 degrees. They head to the next spot on their list, number 17 on the map. It has grass too, and it's close to some classrooms. One, 
95. 97. 97. And three? 92. So the average temperature of the ground surface here is about 95 degrees. They start to make their way to their third location, number 18. It's a triangular playground area with swings. I'd say it's like the main playground. Like the like main place where people play and it's come like the big like playground. A lot of people. The surface is made of that rubber safety material that you see in so many schoolyards now, especially newer schools. And the kids predict that it's going to be pretty hot. They're right. The three readings they get there average at a steamy 143 degrees. Adriana shared some reflections on what she's learned about her schoolyard so far. It's very hot and sometimes you might get like in shock and like, wow, a lot of kids play in the hotness. After students are finished visiting all of the locations they've been assigned, they come back to the classroom to talk about their findings. So when we say a location that you tested, I want you to raise your hand and read out the average that you just found for location one. That's Miss Lamb again. The other teacher, Miss Hines, is standing in front of a poster-sized map of the school. She has colored stickers ranging from blue, which represent temperatures in the 70s or below, to deep shades of red, which represent temperatures over 100 degrees. Location two, right over here where the uh, tetherball is. 115. What about location three, right on the, like by the four square? 123. Or which is over by um, where you eat lunch every day? No, no, no. 63. What do we notice about location four? It's covered. It's covered by what? A shade structure. And can you say that number nice and loud one more time? 63 degrees. A lot cooler when we have a shaded structure. Interesting to notice. Every time they call out a number, a colored sticker representing the temperature is stuck to the corresponding location on the big version of the map. So students could actually see where the different colored dots were clustered at their school. They went through all 25 locations. And when they were all done calling out the average temperatures, they were asked to share what they noticed about all the colored dots in the map. What do you notice about the two places that are blue, though? It's a good they're shaded. They're shaded. They're shaded, they're shaded, oh, shaded they're shaded, so they're way cooler, aren't they? What shades the blue dot on this side? Tree. Tree. What about the other one? The canopy, the shade structure. So both of those are the coolest locations, and we know that they have things that are providing shade, the trees and the shade structure. Really good observation. Aside from those two blue spots, the school is mostly a cluster of red and yellow dots, representing ground surface temperatures from 80 degrees to as high as 151 degrees. The really hot temperatures are on the playgrounds and basketball courts. Materials like turf, rubber, and blacktop receive temperatures in the triple digits. But the project doesn't end there. What else do they do? A big part of using your school as a 3D textbook, especially when dealing with big issues like climate change, is finding solutions and encouraging student agency. So for the last part of the activity, students make a proposal for how they can make the school a bit cooler. So, Ms. Lamb directs students' attention 
back to the big map again. We want to mark our map with triangles to show where we think we should plant more trees and squares for where we think we need shade structures. You can hear that they're thinking about the schoolyard's materials as they decide which places need cooling down. So Adriana's saying that not just because of the ground surface material, but because of the playground itself, it could benefit from having a shade structure over it. Is that right? The play structure is made out of metal, and metal is really easy to get hot. Right. Thinking about that material again, play structures made out of hard plastic and metal, those things get really, really hot. So we definitely want to add maybe like a shade structure over the playground. I love that idea. I also heard Adriana say we want to maybe put a tree in the middle of the field, similar to how it looks at the front of the school with our big trees. How many of us think that that would be a good idea? When they're done, they put the big map with all of its stickers on display in front of the school for parents and community members to see. Sometimes talking about real-world challenges can lead to anxiety and feelings of helplessness. But it's great that they were able to share their insights. That's often the first step toward putting ideas into action. Activities like this can lead to schools developing green schoolyards. Here's Sharon Danks again to tell us more. I would say that it is most succinctly described as an ecologically rich park. They vary widely. The plants in a green schoolyard will depend on its ecosystem and climate. A lot of schools are starting to transition to green schoolyards. I think the need is becoming more clear through weather getting more extreme. California is in the second year of a statewide initiative called the California Schoolyard Forest System. The main goal is to increase the number of trees in public schools. Green schoolyards don't just provide shade on hot days. They come with a whole bunch of benefits, including more opportunities for kids to use their schools for learning. When school leaders start dreaming about the potential they can unlock with a green schoolyard, it's hard to stop. They start saying things like, I'd like a place for kids to do their curriculum outside. I'd like a place that's good for physical and mental health for kids and teachers. We'd like a place for nature, like a place for the birds to come and the, you know, the wildlife to, to be able to visit the pollinators and the, you want to see the butterflies and, you know, things like that. Our school buildings and schoolyards are not just physical spaces, but dynamic learning resources waiting to be tapped into. Learning from textbooks is valuable. But true learning comes alive when we bring education into the real world. School grounds and schoolyards provide the perfect opportunity to do just that. And if a school is able to develop a green schoolyard, you can provide kids with a living laboratory where they engage with nature, explore ecosystems, and understand the impact of their actions on the environment. So teachers, you don't have to travel far for your next hands-on learning opportunity. Seeing your schoolyards and school buildings in a new light might just empower the next generation of change makers. I think, I think now I'm going to be really good. I'm an expert. (laughs) 
This episode would not have been possible without Sharon Danks, Jenny Seidel, Priya Cook, Principal Kumamoto, Miss Lamb, Miss Hines, and their fourth graders. A big thank you to Kevin Stark and Laura Clivens for their support with reporting. The MindShift team includes Ki Sung, Kara Newhouse, Marlena Jackson Rotondo, and me, Mima Gobier. Our editor is Chris Hambrick, and Seth Samuel is our sound designer. Additional support from Jen Chien, Katie Springer, Cesar Saldana, and Holly Kernan. MindShift is supported in part by the generosity of the William and Flora Hewlett Foundation and members of KQED. Thank you for listening. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Hi there. I'm Randa Abdel-Fattah from ThruLine. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. 